Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions, and in this episode, Maxine Mackey of Label Sessions talks to Colin Duff. Colin is a self-described innovation firestar, helping brands like Nestle, HP, BT, and British Gas, among others, crack their toughest challenges. Colin thrives on helping new people, sharing insights, and transforming culture. Over to Colin and Maxine. Colin, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I think we should probably start with some intros. Can you please introduce yourself to the Label Sessions audience? What are, what are you known for? Hi, I'm delighted to be here. So I'm a self-proclaimed innovation fire starter. So what that means is I get people fired up about innovation. Should be the sexiest thing happening in your organization. I think it's about igniting new ideas, usually by unearthing inspirational insight that, that fuels aha moments. Um, I think burning a few bureaucratic blockers, I'm certainly known for, for that, for, for good and bad. <laughs> Um, and then just really um, a very varied career. So from swelling sales of Viagra to post and record profits at Irish Postal Service to many other puns, which I'm a great fan of as well. And um, yeah, getting people out of thought land, getting them into the real world and making stuff happen is what I'm done for. Amazing. And you mentioned there around a lot of your kind of a thought leadership in in making change happen and, and innovation. So we kind of know you as an expert, as someone who's cultivated their craft in how to innovate. And that's very much through a deep understanding of the kind of a many different frameworks for innovation. And um, we talked before around design thinking to 10 types of innovation, systems design, the lean startup methodology. Let me ask you this. Um, you mentioned a very career there in your intro, but how did you become an innovation fire starter? Was there an aha moment for you or is it was it a bit of more of a snowball effect? Yeah, so I think there, there, there's two parts. There's the boring answer, what I characterize the smart, <laughs> and I've been quite literal here, right? I just read prolifically around the subject, which I think is underrated, right? And watched a lot of lectures, so I sounded smart. But then the one interesting part is the kind of street smart practitioner. And I think for me, it was intellectual curiosity and thrown myself constantly into areas I had no proficiency early in my career. Mm-hmm. So I started working at a big traditional energy company and it was a wacky creative agency. And then I went to Big Four and then done some of my own ventures. And I remember, um, you know, in one instance, um, working for Maria, and this is early in my career, so sorry, Maria, and they wanted to design, you know, new environmental psychology and the physical space. And me raising my hand and everyone saying, I'm, I can do that. Or, you know, joining at Deloitte, I worked in leading a big financial modeling project for the first time, having only just um, did some accountancy training. So I think it's just been constantly throwing myself in to upskill in new areas because the innovation, the innovator really needs to be a kind of jack of all trades. So I think it's underestimated. People keep talking about specialists, but if you can't talk the creative and the commercial and the technical and the operational you're just not taken seriously at kind of c-suite level if you're just one of these kind of fluffy thinkers of customer says or you know what a cool idea but you don't have the rigor behind it mm-hmm. it's interesting i think there's a lot of parallels with futurists because i think the most successful futurists i know really are generalists 
and they want to stay a generalist because the minute that they become they start to go down a kind of a, a channel of specializing in one sector they lose the ability of cross-referencing and i think for uh, a lot of the futures we talk to at local sessions they really hold on to being being a generalist but let me ask you about the advice that you would give to leaders who are picking up a new mandate for innovation um what's your advice on how they can make change happen and, and make change happen faster so a few bits of advice first one is the everyone in big business are me or the vast majority over indexes and what they want people to think and do they don't give sufficient regard for what they want people to feel and in the first instance you really want to galvanize and get people excited so there's a famous example of disney and one of the executives pitches the Animal Kingdom, so that, you know, the new Animal um, theme park, brings in all the PowerPoint financial models. They just don't get it. Look, it's not a priority. We're not that interested. He tries all the usual engagement. Nothing is working. So he says, right, give me one other chance and you'll grow. What does he do? He brings in a bunch of lions to the next board meeting, right? <laughs> and all the in these people's heads stand up and they go, God, what's going on? And he's like, do you get it? Right? And you translate that because not everyone's going to be able to bring in lines to some of the stuff we've done. We're working with this energy company, B2B side, that was very conservative. And we thought, how are we going to get these guys to really motivated? So we locked up some competitor adverts and said, oh, look at what your, your competitors run. It's quite cool, isn't it? But they're always beating you to the punch. And they're like, yeah, we should do stuff. They're actually annoying. And like, the good news is this doesn't exist. You can create this. And it just got them, you know, from the off, emotionally engaged. The other thing that um, I think the greatest um, ingredient to innovation success is probably not what people think. They all talk about creativity and things. It's probably speed and momentum, right? A lot of the fire in people's bellies just dies out. Stuff drags on and on. So how do you kickstart, jumpstart? And I'm a great fan of methods like a design sprint, which put simply as you get a bunch of people in a room for a week, and then they try and come up with a directional concept and validate it with a few customers. That might not be the right answer, and you're going to get a lot of detail, but that is setting the really the tonality for that project to say, we're racing out the blocks. We've got some usually clickable prototype that could be real world, and it's something to galvanize the wider business around rather than some kind of abstract low value. We've got a post-it note, or we've kind of got some you know, vague trends, something you can actually coalesce around. And then the final bit of advice I'd give people is don't stay in thought land too long. You should never be doing more than a few weeks of PowerPoint and Excel without some real world engagement. Uh, unless you're building a nuclear power station or something, there is no reason you should not be able to go out and get some real world data. And I promise you, if you're bringing stuff from the real world, people will get excited and it gives you license to challenge that horrible, I hate to use the jargon, handpo. You know the highest paid person's opinion. I've been here 20 years. It's my budget. I don't care. I've spoke to customers and I've got some data and we sold this thing that you don't believe in and it does work. Not always, but sometimes. And I guess these are some of the common challenges and barriers to innovation within organisation you've seen. So staying in analysis paralysis and staying in kind of the thinking space and, and desk research for too long you mentioned the time it takes to make change happen and actually that loses like the fire in people's bellies 
Yeah. And what are ways that organizations can overcome it? So it's interesting for, say, a leader with a mandate for change or somebody that can, I've talked to other kind of, um, say, innovation and venture leads who actually just want to protect their team so they can go and do a thing and it doesn't have to be perfect, um, but to time box it so that there's kind of a stage gate so it feels like there's progression. Talk to me about how, like, what you've seen in organizations and how these barriers can be overcome. Are there things that leaders can do? Um, Definitely. And I'll give you one that sounds a bit contradictory, what I was just saying or paradoxical, and that is less than half big organizations have an innovation strategy. Now, they all have a corporate strategy and often confuse it as being the same thing. But what I'm talking about, if I give you an example, let's say you're a big financial services institution. What is your point of view on crypto on robo-advice, on intergenerational savings, whatever the theme or topic is. And you need to ask in your level of line that is this a problem area or territory you want to explore and solve? And having that alignment at least means people are fishing in the right area. I've seen so many people say, we've got this great idea we'll spend three months on, and then I'm saying it's off strategy. But the strategy was never defined, so they needed them to do the work to decide it was in scope. So no excuse for not having at least a top line thesis which will save you time and another when you use the term time box and i quite like the idea of this innovation accounting and this uh what we call metered funding as well so if you were working on a startup maxine and you said you know give me a big pile of cash and give me a couple of years i'd say no effing way right what i might say to you is i'll give you a few tens of thousands and a months or three months max and come back to me and show me progress right now in the very early stages yes that might be a prototype and qual quantitative data sorry qual data but very quickly i'm going to want to see have you sold anything what kind of traction are you getting in the market have you brought partners on board depending on the nature of it so that's the um same philosophy that apply for a, a, a large organization is you know you guys have got a month, three months tops, depending on what you're working on. What progress are you guys going to bring back? Because if you don't bring any, we're going to defund you or we're going to fund someone else. Now, the mm -hmm. one other advice I have as a leader is innovation failure rates are typically about 80 plus percent, depending on your industry and how stretching you're going to be. So you really do need a portfolio of projects. There is no way to get that figure remarkably different even the top big tech co have similar rates so what you need to do is place lots of small bets early and then see mm -hmm. what you want a flourishing and then you can shut some down you can accelerate others you can merge them you can do interesting things so don't try and innovate with a way of like one you know one venture that's a crazy way it's um to do it you need to play the odds mm -hmm. and let me ask you this how important is culture in maintaining team morale with those quite stark numbers if 80% of a kind of a new innovation activities may kind of end in failure. And also I heard a lot around, it's about incremental confidence. So what can we do to prove value in kind of a, a small increments and steps along the way? How important is a company or a team's culture to, I guess, facilitate that and make that like a, a good place to work for people? You know, culture is, they say that old quote, the Drucker one, right, strategy for breakfast and process for lunch. So completely aligned on culture is absolutely critical. 
But I think some of the mistakes organizations I see make is quite a superficial view of culture. So a lot of them will start on the environment and it'll be okay, we'll get a foosball table and we've got, you know, some wacky visual stuff. And nothing wrong with that, although it's kind of a bit like a sugar rush, right? It's superficial. <laughs> They're not tackling the kind of underlying stuff. Now, the best way for me to tell if an organization has an innovation culture objectively, and there's lots of diagnostic tools out there that are quite complex. I say, give me your 10 or so big innovation projects from the last two years. And what I want you to do is tell me how long all of them took, which is super objective, right? Two years, it was 18 months. And I say, how long do you think it should have taken if you were operating optimally? Now, every time I've done the exercise, almost always, at least half of them, and usually most of them, it should have been in half the speed. And then I just simply say, well, why is it taking so much longer than it should? And then what you do is you start flushing out all these areas of dysfunction, which can be its access to customers or we'll get an annual funding plan and this opportunity to emerge halfway through the year. And those are the ones I say that culture isn't just the kind of fluffy stuff. I mean, it is part of inspiration and mindset. But if you really believe in your culture, you have to make it easy for people to run experiments, right, to get access to customers, to be more fluid in how you assign resources. So when this team's getting traction, but it was a minor initiative and now it's major, how do you switch those funding quite quickly? And you mentioned as well, how do you protect teams from interference? So that is one of the worst things in big organizations. As soon as a team starts enjoying particularly any success, the amount of people that are clamoring to get in there and be associated, you know, you need to, to, to hive them off. Um, so, and I think the other final thing about culture is I'm a believer in multiculturalism in organizations depending on what a team is doing. So if you've got a team that's doing some quite incremental innovation, then they can be a bit more traditional in the culture where you're trying to do more new world venturing type activity or you're engaging with startups. You need to create a different culture, particularly when it comes to the cadence. So just how fast you cycle through stuff. Or the culture, how do you um, assess risk? What kind of metrics do you use, right? These are all very much mindset things as well. Um, so, yeah, culture is is king for me. And I'd love to kind of bring this into a bit of a real-world example because you're someone that has kind of done this in the real world and you've helped big companies launch kind of innovation ventures for the first time. I'm thinking now about your experience with the shipping magnet, Wilhelmsen. Can you tell us a bit around kind of a, how you, like what your remit was? Because I understand it as you were setting up their new innovation venture. Um, I'd love to hear about what that experience was like for you standing with a blank page and, and what you what you learned along the way. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I was over in Oslo for nine months and Wilhelmsen's the second largest shipping company in the world. And working with the maritime supplies business, so this is the division that puts everything on a vessel from welding rods to chemicals and cleaning products to gases and you name it. And what they wanted to do is think about how do we take these unconnected, kind of dumb products and make them smart with internet things and create ecosystems. And they brought me over and I led a team to set up a venture unit. So essentially, many startups within this organization. Now, having lots of the theory, the tempting thing to do is to set up some big systems and processes and, you know, culture. 
And what I recommended to them, and we actually did, as I said, let's start with one venture and let's use that to codify because copy and paste is never as simple. Every industry and every company has peculiarities and needs things to be adapted. So, you know, in day one, first thing was, what systems are we going to use to manage this venture? You know, it's going to involve some software development. We're focusing on inventory management. So we, we rushed out and got some Trello. Then we thought, okay, well, what kind of skills do we need? So we've been assigned some resource in shipping things like health and safety and supply chain management. You know, if vessels move around, critical. So we needed to get the right resourcing. And then we quickly discovered on our inventory management venture, okay, we're going to need some funding. So how do we access some money for some engineering resource? And the government's committee didn't meet for four weeks. That was the finance committee. We thought, well, we're not waiting around for that. So we need to set up our own uh, governance system. And then working with them as well, really talented, super knowledgeable people, but lots of them had been in that organization and that industry for 20 plus years. And we thought, you really need to, to when you're looking at innovation, a more diverse mindset. And I'm talking at the senior decision-making level. So we brought in some non-executives. So there was a executive at Spotify and they were working with Deloitte. So one of the Deloitte partners and there's a couple of entrepreneurs. So that we had a much more balanced view. And then when we were hitting some tensions that are inevitable around things like, oh, we've got a legacy tech stack, so we need to delay and that would work. We could have some of these entrepreneurs and say, well, do you need to build it in that? Or actually, is there a different form of architecture? And here's what we've done so they can bring real credibility. And then the other thing was thinking about the culture. So very easy when you're doing the kind of things we were doing, and some of them were things like drones and 3D printing to get people excited, right? It's just inherently we, we flew our own drones one day, for example, right? Or we had 3D printers on site to show people the cool stuff we could do. But how do you get people to take the plunge? And I'm talking about your top talent from their safe job with their career path into this kind of uncertain venturing area. And it's interesting when I first venture field and we're talking about what are we going to do with this team, the default thinking was, well, you would just go back to your old role. But having spent, put their head above the parapet and done really great, we argued, no, actually, these people need to stay in this venture role and be rewarded because although your venture had failed for legitimate reasons, the team actually was successful in the sense of we got lots of validated learning. So we actually made mm. lots of progress. We built no prototypes. I'm like, these actually, from an innovation skills perspective, are now your top talent. They need to be leading the charge and, and not going back. So it was a real multifaceted um, piece. And probably the biggest one actually was getting them to take external risk. So, you know, internally it was quite easy because everyone was really supportive. But when you go, when you, Go external, and I'm talking here things like trade shows and press, or you you announce launches. That's where people get nervous. And the biggest one actually was going out to the lead shipping um, exhibition and announcing we were launching a bunch of stuff that didn't exist. Now, the reason we done that was because we wanted to gauge interest. Could we get those letters of intent? So we had lots of kind of um, smoke tests, as I'd call it. So things like explainer videos brochures we even had physical prototypes so we had um we we're running one venture rounds uh making rope smart so you put a little sensor in to detect 
they're going to snap. And all we had was this little plastic tube that was kind of a tampon shape. We were able to hold that up and say, yeah, we have the technology and describe it. And the mountain buying, people got to say, oh, that is literally it's that small, is it? And how does it work? So that was the biggest thing that saying, well, we can't go out there until we know more. What if we embarrass ourselves? And you take that Peter Thiel quote, you know, if you're not embarrassed by your first minimum viable product, you've taken too long and applying that to them, which is quite scary for them. I think that's such a good example of what we were talking earlier around things that are kind of incrementally building confidence. So by having a, even a very early prototype or something that demonstrates intent, it's around building confidence, confidence incrementally in the organization. And then I think there's two things that really struck me about your endeavor. I think I'd love to hear about how the venture became, I guess, a bit of a beacon of change for Wilhelmsen, because I think it really affects not just the corporate ventures, kind of a culture, but the wider organization. Yeah, it's um, it, it, and the change really was massive because we actually had so many people in almost every division wanted to come into the venture area. And what we had to do was to think about how do you kind of gate that process in a way that isn't yeah. vicious and doesn't put people off. Now, we, despite being quite well-funded, still had limited resource to do these things. So what we introduced so that you can, you know, get people, give them access to this was Adobe has launched this really interesting open innovation um, program called Kickbox. And essentially what it is in a nutshell, it's a 2D course on kind of innovation basics. So things like design thinking, little bits of experimentation, and you literally give people a box. And in that box, it's got some tools and some checklists and also some symbolic stuff. So for example, there's a um, coffee shop card. And the idea is you can present it to any executive and say, I want half an hour. And they're not meant to say no, right? As well as some funding. So we use something similar there to say, look, you can't always, you can't just take everybody who's got a kind of wild idea and venture, even if it's a good one, but you can, right? And in the first instance, what we'd expect, right? And it's a kind of low bar is to say, can you speak to a few customers of this? Can you create, we introduced a technique from Amazon called PRFAQ. So what we'd encourage them to do is write a press release and a series of frequently asked questions from a customer perspective, from a um Commercial perspective, we ran some training and we gave people coaching on it and then get in front of a few customers, which we can also help you do virtually or face to face. And then come along and we'll absolutely give you a, a fair hearing, but you can't just come with a post it. And that's what I say in so many organizations is our ideas are loyalty scheme. Yeah, I mean, like the, the, we need a bit more than that. So it was, yeah, upscaling people, but not in a way that's prohibitive to them and said, look, we expect you to probably fulfill financial model, which, you know, when it's early stage would probably just be a fantasy plan anyway. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. And I thought it was really interesting you talking about the board of advisors you essentially created for this venture and bringing outside voices in. How impactful was that by bringing in, I guess, people with unbiased advice and outside voices 
into the organization? I think it goes in super helpful because it goes to something I was talking earlier about speed. So people just have, having worked in a big organization, a kind of mindset for how long stuff takes. So you're talking particularly in technology, it's a kind of medium change and it's going to take around six months and we need to get these architects and these people. And then you get someone from the startup world saying, well, why could you not do it in two weeks? And they're just almost aghast, right? And then that person can say, well, why don't we just manually process it, right? There's these kind of automated type solutions at Amazon or offshore. Oh, that's not scalable. And they said, but we don't have scale. We've got a handful of customers. So why are you caring about scale? And then, oh, but you can't do that because of data security. Oh, well, this is how we get around the data security, right? Because we had enterprise clients or they're able just to talk with more credibility than maybe in some cases a kind of general innovator like myself is not a technology expert, right? Or whether it's, you know, some of those other, like a, a legal barrier. And again, they're able to connect you, not just them, to say, look, I know someone from this field who deals with this regularly. Let's get them on a call, right? So they can just speak with a bit of credibility. And having somebody who's one step removed, because even though I like to think of myself as Mr. Objective and data led, when you're in a venture, you're passionate about it, right? Killing it is really, really tough, whatever anyone says, because even all the day this is disconfirming, you're like, I've spent a lot of weekends on this, right? And there's kind of <laughs> so, so you kind of don't want to kill your own venture. And, you know, one of the questions, the first thing we asked um, at our growth board was, if this is your money, would you continue to invest in it? And what was really interesting, in one of the teams, the other teams who came along, everyone said yes emphatically. And one person said yes. And immediately we said, okay, well, you don't sound as though you would really invest your money. And then it flushed out that, well, actually, in, in that instance, they were right. You know, we're right to kill it, but they just didn't want to be that person that spoke up. So, um, yeah, I think these people are just invaluable for bringing a kind of breath of fresh air in. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, let's talk now about what are some of the really crucial elements to innovation and making change happen. You've mentioned a few things earlier around making sure that you know, you don't stay and spend too long in Thoughtland and let the kind of a fire of change kind of a die out in people. Insight is something that I've seen that can be really powerful to drive change and inspire and to, to make give people confidence in their decision. But it also can stall progress too. So six months of research is probably not helpful, although it might seem logical. Um, it'll probably tell you some things um, you wouldn't already know. And I thought it was interesting your quote earlier around if you're not a little bit embarrassed about your MVP, you've done something wrong. And I think that's a really hard thing for organizations. But talk to me about your advice for organizations and, and companies who get stuck in the research and innovation stage and want almost too much confidence that they yeah. can't really get. I think there's two things going on here. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, or I, I believe there's a distinction between traditional market research and innovation insight. So mm-hmm. the kind of foundational layer around things like usage and attitude and broad market trends, super useful for business modeling and stuff, not that useful for innovation because it's mm-hmm. in what you already know. And there's a lot of people who are misapplying those techniques. So things like the focus group or just a traditional interview. And then saying, oh, well, no wonder we're stuck because you just know what your competitors know. So the first bit of advice I'd say is when you approach innovation, it should generally be contextual inquiry, which I mean getting out in the wild. So you can learn a lot from 
seeing animals in a zoo, but you'll learn 10x more by observing them. So whether that is an example of, of Honda, and um, we're looking for innovation in generators, the power generators. First day, I went out with a lady, and it was Tegna Frey, um, Scotland, and she's trying to push this generator for a field. She's run a candy floss stand, and the wheels get stuck. I said, why did you not buy bigger wheels? And she said, that was all they had. I thought, oh, that's weird. It must have been a small shop. Turns out the entire generator industry uses small non-motorized wheels. So that was the innovation on the solve, right? I could give you countless examples where organizations have said, we've done tons of research, but it's all in research settings and it was all asking of it. She didn't observe. The other one that's related, I'd say, is I think there's been a misunderstanding of design thinking that we say, oh, you must empathize. You can't have an idea. And actually taking in provocative ideas early or lots of stuff can really accelerate the cycle. Um, and in that point around getting out of Thoughtland as well, um, I think in my career, the best example we had of this, I ran the innovation team at Armgoss, was we had our innovation hub literally above the store. So whenever we were debating stuff, and we often did, you know, like um, would people tolerate facial recognition or you know, do people want to see a 3D printer in progress? They really don't. Going downstairs is what we're often doing and say, well, go and film it on your phone. And people look and like, and I think there is some things amongst, it's often a quite middle class, very intellectual profession, right? Lots of management consultants. A kind of snobbishness about getting your hands dirty and making stuff happen because it's not often glamorous. I remember actually it taking me weeks to get access to the Wi-Fi in my own stores which people all laugh at and say, how could that be possible, right? Two different contractors. But it's those kind of issues or going out to the local printer and get a branded polo shirt print so that you can stand in your store and hand out flyers. That isn't something to relegate or delegate to juniors. That is like the most important thing at that stage in the process. So I think those would be my things, the, the misunderstanding of what innovation insight is. And then also... The kind of using almost pre-lean startup when you're just doing the quality of stuff to get that real world um, learning. I think that's so interesting when you were talking about contextual insight and then I would get, I guess, compare it to insight that's more kind of a, about inspiration and provocation as well. And it feels like those two things are really different because what you were touching on. So I, I want to ask you about when you get an aha moment and and when you get a, a breakthrough idea, because it's probably not from insight asking customers what they want. Oh, almost never. I mean, I'll tell you what customers want. They want cheaper, faster, um, you know, more functionality. If it's a 10 megapixel camera, they want 15 because that's the way the mind's conditioned to think, mm -hmm. right? But when you do contextual inquiry, one other quick example, because I quite like this one, we did something with John West Tuna. This is going back years ago I worked on, and I got this lady to make me lunch. No great insights over the lunch. It was all, yeah, it's lovely. Give us some new flavors, maybe a smaller, bigger pack. And it's not until they leave, and I go to the bathroom, and I come out and say, look, thanks very much for your time today. And she's sitting scrubbing her fingers. I'm like, what are you doing? She's got a beautiful nail, nail polish. Oh, I hate that fishy smell. And it's one of those things that just throw away, not important. The big innovation was drained tuna, right? So that you didn't actually get the fishy smell and they got sales spiked at 25% just from that as their innovation, right? So <laughs> you can, I can give you tons of examples like that. But then the other ones, I think um, 
innovations don't come out fully formed. It's often the iteration, right? So people, I want to come up with the next Uber or Airbnb. If you look at Uber, right, it starts off as a limousine service and it's delivered SMS. You're looking at the Uber of today, right, which is a really sophisticated tech company that's this multi-city platform. You don't start there. The same with Airbnb, the evolution. It's quite a messy process, but you only find the mess out by doing the innovation. So if I go back mm-hmm. to an example, when we did um, the smack ropes to stop them breaking, you know, one of the first things when we took our little prototype plastic on the vessel is someone immediately says, well, how will that go through the winch? It's going to smash it, right? Or, oh, how does it work? Oh, it's Bluetooth low energy, and it's pretty cool because the range is good, the battery's low, and it's really cheap. On a steel vessel, you do know that Bluetooth doesn't transmit. Actually, we didn't, including the technologists, right? And there's at least a dozen things of people saying, like, you want us to install these in the rope, but you know that the crew that sets up the vessel is different than the one on board, and how would they try it? And how, like, so all these things that are solvable, right, that you just cannot get by researching because people wouldn't think about them. So I think, yeah, following that, people always talk about this squiggle when they talk about design thinking, but then organizations hate it and say, okay, when is the insight and when is this done? So it's it's a lot messier as a sport than people think. Mm-hmm. Which is, I guess, why I think the the piece we were talking about earlier, our culture is so important because it's confidence in that and that it's not a linear process and, and it's just how you're going to get from A to B is not a straight line. Talk to me, is there a framework you prefer to get to breakthrough ideas? Absolutely. And I think, so the default model for, I'm talking 90 plus percent of organizations mm. here is, Design thinking, which they're tend to be average, slightly above average at best. Lean startup, which still, when I survey people, usually it's a four out of 10. Leaders self-rate themselves, right? So that's still not really good in any agile, which is the most mature. Now, the one where you're looking for breakthrough thinking, I'd say there's two. One is the 10 types of innovation. And what this is about is most people, when you say innovation, they think, oh, so you mean your features? Now, it can be, but that's usually the easiest to copy. So you think the razor blade at two blades and at three and it's four, right? Or the camera is just keeping up megapixels. What if you think much more broadly in terms of business model, in terms of um, experiential elements, so things like the kind of process or your structural assets, whether they be hardware, IP, uh, process. And when people innovate and use design thinking, great a method as it is, the one critique I'd have is it's certainly not systematic. I mean, if you want to be cynical, we went out and spoke to a bunch of people and just kind of listened and come up with ideas. What the 10 types gives you is, and there's 121 underpinning tactics, a real method to give you rigor. And what I love about it is when you're pitching to typical executives from a very quantitative background, the MBAs, who sometimes can be a bit dismissive of the quality of design thinking area. It's great to say, well, we've systematically reviewed every one of these tactics and that's why we're opting for this pricing model and that's why we've opted for this process and that's why we've opted for X, Y, and Z. Another great thing about that framework is it allows you to profile innovations. So the amount of times people say, we've got a breakthrough. And what the 10 types says is, for a breakthrough innovation, typically you're talking about five different types, right? So if you think of a kind of zip car, what they've done in terms of like, you know, the process to actually access in the car or putting them on the street, completely different than car fire. You can look at the idea and say, that's only got two. 
So it's probably an incremental innovation, which is fine, but if you want it to be breakthrough, you need to stretch it, and it gives you a bit more of an objective criteria rather than, you know, drone delivery. Is that breakthrough or not? Well, depends on the context, actually. In some instances, no. It's been around for, well, a free printing. It's been around for 40 years, right? So it's not an air breakthrough just because it's cool and sexy. Um, the other one, which I would go into as much detail in, is if you're looking to create a new market space, there's a framework called Blue Ocean Strategy, and that is all about, really, it's got this great tool called a strategy canvas, and it's looking at, essentially, put simply, what are the elements where you can absolutely spike? Where are you going to eliminate things that have lower value? And where are you going to add elements of new value? And it's such a simple tool that you can literally do it in one page to get everybody, particularly executives aligned and say, look, is it service that's going to happen here or is it experience or what magic moments? Where are those peaks and pits? And organizations never think about pits. They're always aiming to do um, benchmarking and kind of this horrible peanut butter strategy of we'll just be average everything. And you think, well, that sounds like a strategy, you know, towards doom. Where do you want to be lower? So if you take IKEA, the returns process, horrible. They'll keep you waiting there, right? It feels like purgatory, but it's deliberate to say, okay, we lose money on that. We want to discourage it. But there are other parts in their experience that is, you know, really magical, right? Whether that be the Swedish cafe or, um, you know, price and being low or Fab, this has been so interesting talking about the different frameworks, and I'm really glad that you were you were talking about the kind of a ten types of innovation because I feel sometimes that design thinking has taken so much of a hold, but for me, it doesn't really create space for the kind of a breakthrough innovation or big picture thinking yeah. because there's not really a space for insight and and inspiration within that. It's all really about the pain points from today and how to solve them. And actually, I think it doesn't take you above the parapet enough. And I think to see things going on in other industries, and you mentioned even using um, mock-up of competitor adverts, things like that earlier around, things to prompt new thinking, both kind of a, how an organization can can act and behave as well as the, the kind of ideas themselves. So I'm 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 glad that you I'm personally glad that you didn't offer design yeah. thinking for your breakthrough ideas. And and I mean one other point I'd say, right, is there's a great saying by the sci-fi author William Gibson and they says the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed. So I think people wrongly assume that innovation to be breakthrough has to be new to world. And very often it only has to be new to category. So I'll give you an example of Dyson as an example. How did they come up with this great innovation? Well, part of it was visiting a sawmill and saying, how do you get rid of all the dust, right? Super old technology and important that. I'm not taking away from what he did. There's a lot more to it. ABS brakes and cars that just come from the airline industry. How do you stop a plane quickly? And there's so many examples. Will Helmson, we mentioned, we visited the Rolls-Royce factory to say, how do you make your product smart? And, you know, they're happy to share. They're not competitors, right? In fact, they're customer and supplier. So... People will give you this access, um, or there might be people I contact in LinkedIn if they're not any list sales celebrity. So, like, can you have a chat with us? Often unpaid or charity donation, they will accelerate your thinking leaps and bounds. But people are almost like, oh no, we must. It's innovation. We've got to, you know, it needs to be grounded in real world stuff. If everything's new, unless you're going to the moon, yeah, you, you're, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> 
So it's time now for our quick fire questions where really it gives me the opportunity to be extra nosy, Colin. So let me ask you first, where do you go to feed your creative brain? Because you've given me so many kind of insightful quotes and amazing kind of frameworks for change. I'm curious where you kind of go to, to feed your creative brain. So one of the um, sources I love is a guy called Seth Godin. You're probably familiar. He's like a big time, really a business thinker specialised in the marketing. But I love about his blog is it's mercifully short and it just has a random thought or something. So today's was about the power of thank you. And you've got all these people using chat, GPT and text. And he's like, how important is a thank you note? Now, kind of obvious when you hear it. But it's not something I've thought about in a long time. And I thought, when was the last time I've sent someone I know or even a bottle of wine? So I think he's a great source of just inspiration and fun. And are there any kind of useful resources you follow and would recommend to people to stay kind of on the pulse of what's going on in kind of the change, innovation and culture? Yeah, I think there's a great one. My friend runs actually called Toolbox Toolbox. An ironic name. And as it implies, (laughs) it's a... um, platform that's got lots of toolboxes now from the big players you're kind of i don't know ideas ibms etc but often from small independent consultancies and you have to submit but then there's a team of people curate them and what i love about this resource is so often you read articles and you see videos and you think that's great but it take me days to apply it and build slides and build it out this often has it in a format you need whether it be a canvas or whether it be slideware that you can actually take and use. So just as a time saver and source of inspiration, can't recommend it enough. Fab. Um, I will be looking at Toolbox Toolbox. Thank you. Um, what's your go-to website when you're procrastinating? Beyond- uh, so I love some versions of kind of stuff. So the Daily Marsh and News Thumb, which are kind of news clarity mm-hmm. types. So it just brings a kind of like smile to my, to my day. It just gives you a different way of looking at the world. So yeah. <laughs> Um, where did you go on your last trip? I had the pleasure of going to Paradise on Earth, which was Kauai, which is the Hawaiian island. It's the one natural one, which I cannot recommend enough. It was expensive and it took a long time to get there, but it was absolutely worth it. Fab. And tell me, for you, what makes somebody a good travelling companion? You know, I, I, probably the best travelling companion I had was my ex-husband. And he was from LA and he was really cool. And he had this ability, like I've never met anyone else, he could sniff out a party. So he'd be going to get a drink at the bar and come back and saying, we're going to some rooftop or penthouse. And ever since he's left, I've never had that ability. So I, I, I don't know how he did that. So yeah, someone who can get me to cool stuff. Awesome. What title would you give your biography? Um, yeah, I think non-conformist would definitely be a good title and professionally and personally as well. <laughs> I won't add up, I won't elaborate on. Fab. Well, um, it's our last question that we ask everybody. Um, on a scale of one to ten, Colin, how weird are you? Do you know, a few months ago I would have said like an eight or a nine, but I'm recently a single and started dating and based on the people I've been dating, I'm going to downgrade it to a six because there's a lot more in <laughs> the out there. I think that's a good place to end thank you so much for your time Cotland it's been a pleasure pleasure thanks Maxine
So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.